one jen yeehaw okay jen's got the first one Alrighty. and welcome to episode 23 of spellburn we are finally going to do the often postponed legendary halfling class episode yay Woohoo! <laughs> it should be a show only half as long as a normal show right Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <I'm- laughs> I'm Judge Jim, and with me tonight are the uh, usual suspects, Judge Job. Hola. Judge Jeffrey. Hey, everyone. And our newest, shiniest judge, Judge Jen. Hello there. <laughs> Let's move it to the tavern. And the first rule of bartending is this. GBTB. Go beyond the book. Go beyond the book. What do you have? Tavern talk. So what did we all do in gaming this week? Job? Uh, sure, I'll jump in here. Um, obviously, lots of writing, and uh, I, I went ahead and finished up um, the uh, my, my home group's, um, what do you call that thing? The one who watches from below. Sorry. <laughs> the, yeah, I shouldn't... the adventure you wrote? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, nice. So, yeah, I think I was telling you guys last time that we got all the way, they got all the way to the end, like in one session. I mean, it was a long session. It was like six hours or something, but, or five hours. Um, so, um, I, I was going to bring, uh, Frozen and Time as a backup, uh, to, to go into right after that. And, uh, I forgot it. So, uh, suddenly there was a dead end wall right before they got to, uh, near the end. And I made them loop all the way around the, the, the bottom level to <laughs> get around to the right side. <laughs> but that, that filled up the time. And then uh, we got done a little bit early. So I finally did what um, I've, I've been wanting to do with that module. And it, it kind of suggested in some of the uh, judges' notes in there. Um, I played the entire, you know, Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, escape from the thing while you're getting attacked and chased by the eyeballs. So that actually worked out pretty well. And uh, uh, they barely got out. Somebody was still uh, cursed and couldn't couldn't come out of the cave at the end. So that was cool. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, and then we uh, they they just happened to find because uh, uh, they had carried the body the the secret way to uh, to remove the curse. So um, so that went well. And then uh, uh, yeah, I think we're going to go into Frozen in time next time. So. 
<laughs> so at the end of that train cart ride, they were going to land in a glacier. <laughs> yeah. I'll Perfect. figure it out somehow. <laughs> That's awesome. How about you, Jeffrey? Uh, let's see. My online game, we they had been taking a little break with some lower-level guys, uh, dinking around Castle White Rock, trying to get some information, but just enough real-life time passed. That I think the whole crew got an itch to go face off with Leotah again. She's really proven to be quite, quite the nemesis to the group. So they decided they wanted to go back to their high-level characters, head back to the great city, and work on taking that off. So we sort of time advanced about three months in game time off screen so that some of the characters could do some of their personal quests and uh, take care of some of that, which we handled in our community group. And then we picked back up with them all sort of coming back together in the great city. Uh, I let them advance up to seventh level. So, and it turns out they really, yeah, they really start to feel their power at seventh level. They, uh, called for a meeting with the Thieves Guild leader and they sort of walked into that. It was sort of like a scene from Tombstone where they, you know, <laughs> walking down the street, they had just, you know, done hiding and skulking in the shadows and stuff. Uh, and, you know, they're starting to feel their power. Seventh level certainly seems to be a, a bit of a power bump in a good way, but it just means, you know, the, the challenges will have to get greater. So we spent about a session in the Great City them establishing their strength for fans of the actual play podcast you'll get to see some more uh temple of cthulhu uh fun games because they can't seem to leave that place alone uh, so yeah that's what we did but back to the higher level guys uh seventh level uh definitely a bit of a power bump and they're back on trying to topple leotal at this point again I'm going to be really interested to see how this goes and how you handle it because at seventh level in DCC, what you've got going now is like a party that's a team up between Conan and Elric and Kane and. Yeah, it's it's really a big shift. I mean, it, it's the first big shift I felt. I mean, first and second level, you know, pl- characters tend to die off here and there. Then you know, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth have been pretty, you know. Smart play gets you a long way, and now it's just like they're really powerful. They can cast spell checks and get really high numbers, and uh, you know the multiple attacks, multiple spells. And so now it's not just one magic missile spell; it can be two magic missile spells in a round. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how I adapt uh, to playing some of that as they wrap up this particular storyline. So, but it's been fun; it's been cool. Do you have a plan for when you're going to encourage them to retire that set of characters? Um, I do, and we've sort of talked about it on the, the our, we have a community group, a private community group that we sort of discussed between sessions, and I do have a bit of a plan. Uh, I don't think it's too much metagaming, but essentially, when we see what happens with this Leotop plot line, there's some bigger cosmic forces at play that I've hinted at so far for them, either what could be called patron-level uh wizard types or even deities themselves. Cthulhu's obviously not very happy with this group. The whole uh, cleric having shifted deities, oh, you know, several months ago, game time. Uh, you know, obviously that's going to be a thorn in their side. Uh, you know, they've sort of become friends with Mani, the temple that they're occupying. So I'm, I'm sort of setting the stage for some of this higher level deity uh, play for a little bit, which will probably be the closing gaps of the the campaign as they tackle some of that stuff so that's my plan to shift into the higher power level i I see in their future a possible total party ascension yes yes uh yep (laughs) (laughs) how about you jen uh we finally got our group back together um we run about six hour sessions each time and all of the players have multiple characters because you know, they have them left over from the funnels. I know I didn't do a good enough job pairing them down there. Um, it happens. So the last adventure that I ran them through was actually the one who watches from below. But I had them just take one PC per person this time, which was kind of different for them. And simultaneously, their other their counterparts are going through the Jewels of the Carnifex, which is what we jumped into this last time. Um, got two new converts at the open table, which was awesome. And since the others had already started in the, the very end of our last session, uh, we had a rogue, uh, not rogue, a lost wizard looking for the rest of his friends. So he drags 
four little farmers down into the under temple. Nothing can go wrong there, right? <laughs> um, I've got to say the highlight of the the entire adventure was, you know, they're they're trying to do the things necessary to maybe make a deal with the guy who's having him pretend to destroy the jewels of the Carnifex to lock her in where she needs to be. Uh, but they also want to get out alive, and they know that eh, that may or not happen either way. Uh, so our halfling in the group, who's a little bit touched, uses a speak with a dead ring that he's been carrying around on one of the skeletons that is part of the uh, the sacrificial enchantment to lock the Carnifex in where she is. And oh, so he finally gets someone else's point of view on the whole situation. That's spoilers. Well. For a two-year-old adventure. Kind of, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but uh, we actually had to leave the session because, you know, the store closes. Um, just at a crucial moment. So made sure everything's notated so that we know exactly which combat we're jumping into the minute we sit down at the table next time. Uh, at the end of the end of the day, we've got a fourth level warrior finally, and these potato farmer that wandered in ended up having a near death experience and decided he's going to be a cleric of the Carnifax. So we may see a uh, cult slash religion resurfacing in this town. So it's not going to play like a one-shot. This is going to fold into your campaign. It all is, yes. Nice. That's yeah, I, I, I'm so excited about the cleric. I'm, I'm poking Harley for a little bit more information because <laughs> g- give me what you got, man. <laughs> it's so funny how many of those uh, the DCC uh, modules kind of corrupt people's campaigns. And, you know, you, Judge is going to have to end up writing all kinds of stuff to uh, flesh it out a bit. It's well, awesome. I used the little thief at the beginning of this, uh, Magmar the Lucky. He's kind of been the the drunk around town that sends people out on stuff just for his own amusement. And he was supposed to be sending the last group to investigate this undertale. <coughs> he gave him the wrong map, which is how he ended up over at Job's Adventure. <laughs> so the next day it was a, oh, my bad, here's the right map. Um <laughs> I, I don't know where I sent your friends. Sorry. <laughs> so what we've learned so far on the podcast today is if you don't own the one who watches from below, go get it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well. <laughs> so what's your world tour count so far, Jen? <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, geez. Uh, for this year, that was appearance number nine, technically. Number nine. That's the bar, folks. <laughs> did, you do, did you do nine last year, Jen? Um, I think I had 14. Oh, wow. What, what uh, art did you get? Do you mind me asking? I don't remember. It was one of the smaller pieces that was in, uh, I think it was listed on one of the spells. I'll have to find it. Oh, cool. Most of us were just shooting for the brass buckle, but Jen's going to end up with the brass plate armor. <laughs> yeah, the full suit. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes, I have already gotten my t-shirt. I, I was the good little judge and wore it yesterday. I, I haven't even sent in my list. I know I've, I've run a few this year already, but I, I better get around to doing that. You, of all people, have no excuse, Job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, speaking of World Tour games, um, we set aside the Mutant Crawl Classics campaign for a couple of sessions so that Rick Hull could run us all through a playtest of Harley Stroh's Perils of the Purple Planet. Yes, I finally weaseled oh. my way into that one. Ooh. Awesome. This is a version, I think Dak has already done his editorial pass, so this is pretty close to a publishable version. Uh, so far, the first episode was a lot of us just getting characters rolled up and exposition and really getting into it. So it's a lot of fun so far, but I don't think we've gotten to the real meat of it yet. Just some, some bare humanoids, which I torched, and uh, uh, some mushroom forests. We haven't gotten to any of the really good stuff yet. But the big news for me personally getting to jump on the other side of the screen and play is Rick Hull fin- finally let me off no spellcaster probation for good behavior. <laughs> for which he was immediately rewarded by uh, me uh, randomly rolling up a wizard who had arcane 
affinity for fire-based spells. Ooh. Of course. So. <laughs> How fitting. That, that goes so well. Rick is going to be so happy that he chose to let you, you run a, another arcane caster. Did you get fireball or a fire spell? Uh, we're only playing second level, but I've got scorching uh, ray, flaming hands, and was able to use the affinity to bounce up my uh, magic missile. So all of those now at second level are a D24 plus six. Oh, good lord. Spell check. Oh. <laughs> wow. So, first thing, right out of the pyramid, you know, here's a bunch of, you know, hostile bear guys, and one, somebody at the table goes, we should capture them and take them prisoner and ask them questions about this place, and I'm like, I'll leave you one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So, uh, that was fun, and uh, we continued uh, my new uh, spanking brand new Metamorphosis Alpha first edition campaign. That's been really crazy, those rules. Wow. I'm just, I'm loving it. It's taking a group effort. We're all in it together. We had to retcon a battle because uh, we didn't understand the rules correctly. Oh, man. Well, it turns out that that 30d6 could have only landed on one of the party, not four of them. So we retconned that. But uh, holy, I mean, between the mutation powers and the d6s that were flying at the table, I thought we were playing champions there for a second. Which, if you've ever played champions, it's all. Never mind. Um <laughs> And got my uh, got some assignments into Goodman, so I've had a good gaming week. Awesome. How about we summon some emails? You've got mail. Message for you, sir. Summon email. Dun da da da. Okay, what do we got in the email bag this episode? Uh, looks like we've got one here from uh, Dylan Green. He says, Howdy, Spellburners. Listening to your show and enjoying it greatly. When can we look forward to an episode examining the elf class? The concept of race as class has always been fascinating and strange to me, coming to RPGs after ye old days as I did. Will you fold it into the magic user like you kind of did with Dwarf and Warrior? Have you already covered most of the important moving parts when you talked about patrons? Thanks much, Dylan Green. <laughs> well, given how long it took us to get this Halfling episode done, I'd say we'll get to elves in the next two to 48 weeks. <laughs> well, I mean, we kind of we rolled elves into uh, episode five, a mercurial magic system. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, that we should have had him rolled into the magic. Yeah. Um, for the wizards. We should have rethought our cool our cool uh, hip names for episodes. Maybe people can't find that that's the spellcaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we'd be open eventually to doing an elf, uh, an episode focused on elves, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think some oh, yeah. of the topics, you know, some of the stuff's been basic overviews, and there's room for deep dives or, you know, just a, a combination episode of something. Yeah, well, I mean, sure. we still need to do that uh, advanced magic show too. But at least we're finally closing out the core classes. <laughs> well, maybe those are the two that go together: elves and advanced magic. Because then you can start talking about the king of Elfland. Yes, that wonderful patron. Yeah, <laughs> he gets around. The word's yeah. out. He made an appearance <laughs> yeah. in my uh, my last one who watches game too. So uh, basically, saved everybody. I'm king of Elfland. Yeah, he always <laughs> seems to be doing that. Let's roll back time. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks, Dylan. What's our next email? Next one is from DM Kojo. And Kojo. He writes, Greetings to the band. Thank you for choosing my son Chase's Gonzer's app for the Dungeon Denizens in episode 21. Chase was thrilled to hear his creation discussed on the podcast. I have a question about mercurial magic effects. My group uses the house rule that you roll the mercurial effects and manifestation of the spell the very first time you cast a spell. This makes for a more spontaneous experience. However, some of the mercurial effects can be very detrimental to the caster and or party. By the book, it seems that you are stuck with mercurial effect no matter what. I was thinking of making a house rule that allows a caster to bypass the mercurial effect by spell burning. The question is how many points need to be burned. It seems that the number of points required should scale up based on spell level. Do you have any thoughts on this issue? DM Kojo. Man, that guy's always a thinker. <laughs> he is, too. I do the same. Make the, the spontaneous experience, you know, the way you cast it is unlike the way anybody else does. So do you really, like, I, I level up and I get a new set of spells 
and first time out in the field with one, I get to find out. Give me a percentile. <laughs> I, I always just roll them at the time of, of spell creation because first off, I think, you know, you're going to cast a spell sometime. I mean, how did you learn it? And second off, um, I just don't want to slow down my game, like rolling up Mercurial FX in the middle of them. So. Well, I'll have them roll for it at the time that they write the spell down on their sheet. But I try not to let them know exactly what it does until they do it at least once, because otherwise they'll just say, oh, well, I've got this spell, but I'm going to junk it. Yeah. And- you know, that's interesting, too. I, I never really even considered that that some of those material effects, there really wouldn't be any reason that the, the, the spellcaster would know anything, like, you know, kills a person somewhere. Well, it, some of them, like, if it requires, you know, a point of blood from a living creature, it, I had one spellcaster that would just carry around a sack of rabbits with him. Yeah, I've done that. Well, you know, as to uh, DM Kojo's question, um, I don't know about you guys, but, you know, I'm just, I'm just for making it easy, I would just say burn one point of... Uh, of ability points, one one point of spell burn. Yeah, I think that's I think that's what I'd lean towards too. Just one point if if you're going to go that route, just one point. I don't know if I'd vary it based on spell level. Would that be for each time it's cast? Yes, at least it would be in my case. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Or or you know one per spell level or something. I guess. Right. If it's a level three spell and you really want to cast it, but you don't want the side effect. Nope. That would make sense. I guess I'm going to come down as the hard ass on this one. I don't think that that rule should be bypassed under any circumstances because it's counter to the spirit of the game. Um, what I liked what you said at first, Joe, as far as when do you understand the mercurial magic effect, because it would only make sense to me for it to be a spontaneous roll if it's in the middle of an adventure and the wizard just like grabbed somebody's spell book and then tries a spell for the first time. Otherwise, logically, role-playing-wise... Whenever they learned the spell, they would have experimented with it enough to understand what's going on. Now, if it's like a scroll or a spell they trip upon in an adventure, they should get to find out like that, live, on the fly. Now, is a mercurial effect uh, triggered, for lack of better phrasing, by the use of a scroll? Uh, Probably not. I just said that. I think it's an awesome idea, though. Yeah, I'm thinking this ring of speak with dead could have repercussions next time. <laughs> but but the, exa- the example you used, Jen, was the same mercurial magic uh, one of my wizards had where he couldn't cast flaming hands without doing 1d6 to the next nearest living creature. And that had awesome role-playing repercussions because it first forced my wizard to start running up in a melee to cast flaming hands, which is a pain in the ass, and then I figured out, well, I'll just get a little bag and start chucking, you know, moths and mice into it and carry it on my belt, and when I need to, one of them can take it. When I want that to happen, I just thought, toss the bag away. That, I mean, I wouldn't have had that experience if I could have just spell burned a couple of points and forgotten about it. That's true. It does add to the flavor. So thanks, Kojo. Thanks for the conundrum, Kojo. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's a well-written email that gets us to disagree. A diversity of opinion. Okay, it looks like our next email is from Todd Bunn, DM Todd. He says, Greetings, Spellburners. Let me first commend you all for producing a top-notch podcast. He has to say that. I pay him. Um, (laughs) I love DCC, and Spellburn definitely enhances my enjoyment of the game. I just wanted to clear up a little confusion that I sensed in episode 21 in regards to the finale of The One Who Watches From Below at GaryCon. I did play in Job's game at GaryCon, but I was playing neither a wizard or an elf. I was the cleric. It was also not my idea to invoke the king of Elfland. The fellow playing the elf, whose name escapes me, came up with that idea. In fact, it wasn't even until that point that I realized we had been playing in the same game that Judge Jim and I had discussed uh, earlier, him having already told me how it ended. However, I will admit to leading the retreat once our time-traveling comrade came back to warn us, but that was more out of survival instinct than any sort of metagaming. Job, it is a fabulous adventure. I wish we could have had more time to explore all the nooks and crannies. Keep up the good work. DM Todd uh, from Gateway Games and more. All right. Well, thanks for the, the email, ties. Yeah, sorry, uh, I, uh, bad recollection of the game. I, I I can't remember what I had for breakfast, if or if I had <laughs> breakfast today. So, um, sorry about that. Um, but I'm glad you had fun, and uh, 
Yeah, I, now I always I get on Facebook and and uh, tease Todd all the time. Like he, there was a picture of him playing the game the other day, and I was like, "Ooh, uh, there's Todd. He must be leading the retreat of when everyone's about to get the big payout." So. Well, I mean, Todd should understand too. Some of that's just uh, the way uh, it's the guy thing, where we express love and affection for one another by giving each other a hard ass time. I, I wouldn't say that's oh, yeah, gender definitely. specific. Well. <laughs> Oh, call me right out on that. There you go. See, I think she just threw the gauntlet down. <laughs> no, I, I, lo- I love how she expressed an opinion and demonstrated the opinion simultaneously. That, but, that, uh, that's thanks, why Todd. you brought me here, right? <laughs> to give me a hard time, sure. <laughs> I, I thought we brought her on because um, I was tired of being a sex symbol on the show. <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking of it's it. the hair, Job. It's the hair. <laughs> I'm thinking more of it like this is this is going to be Spellburn's Blondie years, where we're we're a hit band until Deborah Harry decides to go off and do her own podcast, and then we'll just be called back occasionally to do you know concerts twenty years from now, <laughs> or not. Don't leave us, Jen. Uh, no, we're good. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, DM Todd. Uh, we have one more email. Jen. Yes. Oh, yes, we do. Sorry. <laughs> So, um, we have one more email from William Brown. Dear Spellburn team, another great episode. I especially enjoyed hearing about the range of fanzines, as I have not yet looked at most of them. I'll definitely be doing so now. Do you know if any of given deities for clerics a patron treatment? It would be great if clerics could choose deities who would cause a divine taint. Ooh. And uh, would have specific cleric spells. I have really enjoyed DCC, especially its magic system, and it would be exciting for clerics to have this element developed a little more, perhaps in the annual, if not in zines. Many thanks, and please keep up the great work, Will. Thanks for your uh, email, Will. Yeah, and I agree with him, too. Uh, Yeah, I think so, too. Um, We need a little more love for the clerics and the patrons. Yeah, I I agree with that, that sentiment. I mean, I don't know if I would go exactly with the... The same patron stuff, but um, it definitely, uh, they, I, I don't know, some other kind of flavor, not, you know, just, you know, their deities and not patrons. But, um, yeah, there's definitely room for some kind of uh, game material around that. There's that one Kickstarter, and uh, my dyslexia is preventing me from remembering it, where you can get the uh, you can get the book in PDF, but the print version has never printed yet. What's it called? Does anybody Angels, remember? Angels, Demons, and Things in Between? Yes. I got yes. the PDF of that, and that's an excellent treatment and a resource. Yeah, I do reference that one a fair amount. Now, does that go beyond um, like the clerical use of divine aid? Because I know that automatically incurs that additional ten points of uh, disapproval. Mm, yeah. Yep. For the disapproval range. I've... So how how would a divine taint differ from deity disapproval? I think. If it, I think, to, yeah, it's power. To me, I, I don't know. Like, I just feel like it is missing something. And like Job says, I don't know if I would mimic exactly what's going on for the wizards, but just some flavor bits to, I don't know, give you something similar to the wizards, but yet with its own unique little taste. And I don't know for sure what, because I've tried to think about it and haven't come up with anything great. But I don't know. It does feel like there's a little bit of a missing spot to make clerics pop just a little bit more. Do you mean in the, in the class rules or in the number of uh, deities available? I'm talking about number of deities available, and then if you call upon a deity and you piss them off, what's the... Like their interaction. Yes, what's their interaction with it? I mean, we know we've got the patron taints, but what would a deity do? Something, Some mechanic for that or something. Ah, those rules for how to deal with disapproval are pretty sweet. The way, the way they played out at our tables. I mean, the, just the last game, Perils of the Purple Planet, our cleric was suddenly forced to start recruiting people to the cause of Cthulhu. Yeah, but there's one chart for that. All right, there's one table. That's... Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, and that's I think where I'm from is we've had enough disapproval that it's like, okay, how many followers can I possibly? Re- I mean, and obviously you can recruit more, but we seem to get that one a lot. You must recruit a follower in the next 24 hours, or you know, suffer minus one to your spell checks, and just just something a little more. I got gotcha. you. Personalized. A deeper, yeah. richer set of tables. Yeah, something like that would probably help. Something in that that line, or at least I think personalized by alignment. Yeah. Well, that does sound like prime material for the mythical uh, annual, DCC annual. Mythical, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, you know, it's not my wish to give the Dark Master uh, a hard time, but, you know, right now the annual is more of a biannual. Ooh. <laughs> well, that's true. It's been almost two years since it came out. What's the date today mm. again? Oh, thank it's you for... May 26th, the last day that uh, Jim ever got an assignment from the... <laughs> <laughs> No, dude, thank you for reminding me. This is our one-year anniversary show. Ooh, All congrats, right. guys. What? Job, Job had this wacky idea a year ago this week. Oh, my God. No, this is even reminding me of my anniversary. This <laughs> <laughs> it's our anniversary today, honey. I'm like, oh, Jesus. No, Did no, you I'm... forget flowers again, Job? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Will, if you want to uh, hear us whine about uh, clerics, you can also check out um, episode 10 if you haven't heard it, um, Holier Than Thou. Another wow. misleading show title, huh, Job? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Lord. Okay. Is that all the emails for this episode? Uh, Yeah, I think that the mailbag is empty. I I think it's completely drained now, isn't it? That can't be possible. Uh, There might be a couple in the wings, but not much. Yeah, it's dwindling. So send those emails to the band at spellburn.com. Yeah, give us stuff to kibitz over. Yeah, we're paying the mail monkey to handle all this, so if he's not doing anything, we're not getting our money's worth. <laughs> all right, well, on that awkward, tragic note, we'll go over to some mighty halfling deeds. Wait a second. I have an idea. That's plenty for the both of us. I move for no man. <laughs> Ow. Mighty Okay. Wow. This show seemed extraordinarily difficult to mount for some reason. Why was that? Kept coming up. Little feet. They don't move very far. (laughs) We we had to shave the halfling's feet. Oh, man. (laughs) That accounts for the extra months. Got it. Uh, Listen, have you ever tried to manscape a halfling? I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Joe. (laughs) Oh, there you go. That's the way to start it off. Well, um, before we get into the crunchy bits, I want to start with what I find most interesting about how this class's race is written up in the rules. Of all the classes, this is the one where Joseph really seemed to try and have his cake he needed to, because the flavor text for this is as close to uh, direct homage to Tolkien as can be, that the halflings are, you know, focus on full bellies, and they want to stay at home after this next adventure. But then the rule mechanics themselves sort of play out like they're little rolling fur balls of ninja death. Which is, <laughs> yeah, the, which is the way they, I've seen them played. That's an interesting contrast to me. Yeah, I definitely agree. The halflings I've always run for have almost always been little rolling balls of death is what they end up getting called. As they roll out there using luck and dual weapon fighting to to take care of business. So you're right. It's funny how the description contrasts to how they tend to get played in actual combat. I mean, they're they're a little bit like uh, you know maybe like the the carnivorous uh, halflings from from Dark Sun, but um, I think these uh, the Goodman Games uh, DCC version is uh, more badass to me. Oh, they're total badass! What does anybody read the uh, webcomic Order of the Stick? Oh yeah, uh, that that's what the the way I've seen them play at the table reminds me of Belcar Bitterleaf in that comic strip. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I am a sexy shoeless god of war. Ah, yes. Yes, he is. (laughs) Yeah, not me. I have shoes on. Yeah. Well, and and I personally love the idea of a a good luck charm for the party. It seems kind of kooky from an outsider point of view, but once it's in play, I mean, they they definitely add a bit of positive flavor in what could be a really dreary situation. Yeah. It's one of the genius masterstrokes of the entire rule set is, is the luck mechanic as it applies to this particular class. Yeah, definitely. Everybody seems to want a halfling in their party, and like you said, it can, Jen, it can change a dire, dark situation into hey, the halfling throws a little bit of luck on it, and suddenly it's a you know game changing spell or a game changing attack or something like that. So, uh, I definitely agree that the mechanic and how the halflings interact with the luck mechanic is plays off pretty cool in session. Yes, definitely. It's one of the well, things I love about this game is how they uh, used race as class, except they fixed them. This is the first. I mean, <laughs> I used to we used to play basic D and D back in the day and race and just accepted race as class, but uh, the way that's written in this game, every single race is highly functional and fun to play. 
Okay, well, yeah. you know, um, for, for people who, who aren't familiar with uh, the DCC Halfling, maybe we should just, like, run down through, um, you know, what, what the abilities are to get people introduced to them. Sounds let's, good. Let's crunch through it. Okay, so uh, we already discussed that uh, Halflings are masters of two-weapon fighting. So um, they, they get a bonus, uh, like they had a higher agility um, than they have if their agility is lower than 16. Um, they uh, can see, uh, they have improvision. Uh, they're small, so they can uh, you know, run through people's legs or climb into little s- small places. Um, they, can run about, uh, t- uh, they can run 20 feet per round. Um, they get two thief skills, uh, sneak silently and hide in shadows. And they get an increasing bonus for that every level. Um, and the number one thing uh, that we already hit on here is that uh, they're lucky. So I don't know. Someone wanted to just describe how they're the, the luck battery mechanic for someone that doesn't understand it. Yeah, let's do luck first, and then we'll go back to the two-handed weapon fighting because that's cool too. So for halflings, when they spend a point of luck, they get twice the number of luck. So if they spend two points of luck to try to boost a, a die roll, they're going to get. Uh, four points applied to that roll. Uh, so that's w- one mechanism that for themselves, they're lucky, able to spend uh, a bit. They are also able to burn luck for an ally. So if uh, the sp- wizard casts a spell and needs a few more points to get that awesome result, the halfling can spend luck on their behalf. And it also gets applied at two times the luck. Uh, so if you spend two points, the, you can, the, spell, the wizard can cast with an extra plus four to the roll. And if that's not good enough, they also regenerate their luck, unlike the other character classes, save for the thief. Uh, every night, a halfling regains luck at the, their level rate. So if you're a third level and you get a night's rest, you get three points of luck back. So there's sort of an encouragement to spend your luck, use your luck, and donate it to other people because that night you're going to get it back, or at least your level's worth back again. So I think that sort of all goes into... Give them their reputation as the luck battery. And the luck donation ability is line of sight. So all they have to do is be able to see the person they want to donate the luck to, and it happens. Yeah, good point. But you can only have one good luck charm in the party. Yes. So if there's, if there's more than one halfling, one needs to be designated right off the bat. That's the lucky yeah. halfling. Well, yeah, otherwise they would rule the planet because all you need is a battalion of halflings and nobody could defeat them. Very oh, true. there's an image. <laughs> Very true. Now, I do that per session, though, as opposed to per campaign, because if somebody doesn't show to the table, I don't feel it's right to penalize the entire party for that. How do you guys handle it? That's a, that sounds like a good rule to me. Yeah, I think that's totally – I don't think I've ever – I don't. I might have had two halflings once, but yeah, I think that's totally appropriate to designate it per session instead of the whole campaign. I mean, under those specific circumstances, I think that's a good judge call, but the rules do state that you can't switch off lucky halflings uh, by rearranging or splitting the party, because otherwise, one halfling, you'd have two, and one would just run his luck down to the ground, and then you'd switch. Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, usually, you know, whoever shows for that um, for that session or, or that um, group of sessions for the adventure... No, I, I, but I like your way, because, Jen, because that gives the illusion of it being a generous game master right before you kill your players. You're giving everything away, Jim. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so it looks like the other big point about this is the two-weapon fighting. Um, there's a couple special rules for this as opposed to uh, normal people fighting with two weapons. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's go back and save ourselves some emails because this, is, this has been questioned before, before we leave the luck thing. If, oh. if the halfling uh, gets two points of luck for every point they burn and they're donating it, do they donate? Do they keep one point and donate the other point? I've seen tables that played it that way, or do both points go to whoever they're donating it to? I do both points to whoever they're donating it to. Yeah, and I used I used to do it uh, just uh, not double for allies, but um, I actually uh, found uh, Joseph Goodman posted on the forums and said the intent was that that um, double goes to the ally. So I do that all the time now. Excellent. I just wanted to make that really clear to the listeners. Good call. Okay, Jen, back to your two weapon fight. Oh, whenever a sixteen is rolled. Because you rolled the uh, the 
pair of D16s fighting two-handed. Any roll of a natural 16 is both a crit and an auto hit. If you're normally fighting with two weapons, uh, say a warrior is doing that, and he rolls the D16, but that plus his deed die doesn't make it to the DC of the creature he's attacking, it's not an auto hit. So the halflings have that benefit. Well, let let me let me back it up and play devil's advocate. I'm a player who who's thinking about playing a halfling. If I just attack with one weapon at say first level, I've got my D20 single action die. But if I have two similar weapons and attack, I'm attacking one step down. I'm, I'm dual wielding two weapons, but I attack one step down the dice chain. So now I'm rolling two D16s, one for each attack. Why would I want to do that? I'm not as likely to hit with a 16. Well, actually, Job did some fancy math on this. <laughs> and especially for the lower levels, um, I don't know, Job, do you want to give him your formula on that one? Oh, oh, well, I was thinking maybe we save that for the Mercurial Magic section, so ah. we just kind of go dive deeper there. Or? Well, I was just being devil's advocate. The easy answers are you've got two chances to hit at You once. get two chances to crit, if you're not a, just hit. Yes. And well... Not to jump ahead Actually, of your formula, but that doubles your chances of critting. Plus, uh, you can't fumble dual wielding with a halfling unless you roll two ones. Right. Actually, you can't you can't crit with your second weapon either. I'm sorry. You, you can't um, crit with your second weapon. I mean, if you look at table four three, um, the two weapon attacks table on page ninety four of the core book. Um, um, no, if your agility is eighteen plus, your primary hand die is normal. So you, your right, hand that, is minus one die, and then primary hand scores critical as normal. That but is that, correct that, for warm. other races, or for, for humans and, and other characters. Um, on page 60, for the halfling, unlike other characters, when fighting with two weapons, a halfling scores a crit and automatic hit on any roll of a natural 16. Oh my god, I'm doing something wrong again? See, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're doing I, something. I don't know if this has ever come up anyway. <laughs> How often do you have halflings in your parties, really? Who chooses their halfling to be their favorite out of all of their funnel characters? I mean, I'm dyslexic and have very poor math skills without the aid of a calculator, but I played a halfling and quickly figured out that my chances of critting were about 10% per melee round as opposed to a normal, you know, without the deed die and all that stuff, about a 5% chance of hitting 20 on a d20. So that's like double the chances to crit, although less chance to hit. That's true. And and a much reduced chance of fumbling. Although at our tables, we've had to be pretty stern with reminding uh, halfling players that it has to be matching weapons. That is true. I've got a question for the assembled judges. What if I'm a, playing a halfling and the rule says that they have to be matching single-hand weapons, right? What if I mm-hmm. want to play a halfling with two slings? That's just silly. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very Belcar, though. <laughs> yeah, it does say he's trained in sling. That That's kind of silly. I don't know. Yeah, I've never had that I mean, come up. It, my, ins- my, my gut is, no, that doesn't make sense, but I'm trying to think of that a reasonable reaction or not. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. You could kind of pull a sling while still holding a sling in the other hand. Why not? Yeah. And that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, at first I was like, how would you load it? But you could, if you were half, you could figure it out, right? I don't know. That's a good one. I mean, you're just a little monkey. You practically got two extra hands. <laughs> well, something Great. to think, something to I think about. I'm just... I, yeah, now I know what to expect at the table next time. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> Our halfling's crazy enough. Yeah, the DCC world's going to be afloat now with dual-wielding, sling-shooting halflings now. I played a halfling in uh, Free RPG Day last year, the Imperishable Sorceress, and I got to tell you, it was a lot of fun when I needed to. You couldn't run around doing this all the time to get that demon on one side of the chasm. I got the cleric to give me a bottle of holy water. I stuck that in my sling and then burnt the crap out of my luck to hit him, like at 100 feet. It was awesome. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Didn't do that much damage, but it was fun to do. So uh, is that it? Have we covered two-weapon fighting, you think? Think that does it? Oh well, there's. I'm sorry. I thought of one more thing. The halfling two-handed weapon fighting abilities, uh, where grants the halfling the uh, 
ability to play as though he has a 16 agility when using two-handed weapons. But if you happen to roll up a halfling that has a 17 or 18 uh, agility, they have their choice of using the halfling two-handed weapon rules or the uh, warrior two-weapon rules that you were talking about, Jeffrey. There are pros and cons to both, as you were pointing out. Right. The pro would be, now I'm a D20 and a D16 instead of two D16s. The con, one of the cons would be, now I only crit with one of those die. Oh, and on the flip side, too, um, you only fumble if you roll two ones, naturally. Yeah, which I think is a pretty big thing as well. It's nice not to have to fumble a lot. Oh, but a double fumble would sure suck. Only on roll 20 would that happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that covers... How about those thief skills? They get a fair amount of... Yeah, they get a fair amount of play in my game. The halfling is always trying to sneak around silently and hide in shadows to get into advantageous positions. So, I, you know, it seems like not a lot, I guess, when you first read it. Oh, okay. But it fits the class really well, and it sees a lot of use in my, uh, from the halfling in my game. Yeah, if they were able to get the actual backstab skill, we'd be in trouble. Yeah, yeah. That might be too much. Plus, they're only three to four feet tall, so it would be more of a butt stab. <laughs> Back of the knee. <laughs> Well, I, th- I mean, I think that sums up at a low level the uh, the halfling class. What, what do you guys think? Ready to switch it over to Mercurial Magic and talk about how to deal with these little death monkeys from behind the screen? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Great all-seeing eye of Agamotto, you must come to my aid! Doesn't weird stuff happen when spells are messed up? I don't feel anything. <laughs> So that could have gone better. Material magic. Okay, I've I've played a halfling. I haven't uh, run a game with one in it. I bet you guys have. Yeah, oh, yes. Yep, I've run for a halfling, and he spends our halfling in our party jargon. Uh, he's our longest running halfling, uh, and he's. A pretty big asset to the party between, uh, like I said, he uses the sneak skills a lot to get into cool places. Uh, he really tries to blend in with things. Uh, so a lot of times he'll be present at places and folks don't even know he's there, which is sort of cool. Uh, the luck battery aspect uh, gets it gets used pretty pretty well in our game, I think. I don't think it's abused or anything like that. Uh, it, he throws luck out when it needs it. Uh, seventh level now, of course, getting seven points of luck back so he can spend a, a fair amount of luck and hand it out but it works out really well uh, and he tends to go back and forth between the, the dual weapon wielding and the, the single depending on the situation but uh, he's been a, a good asset to the party in our games uh, like I said being able to turn what even even if it's just getting a spell so you don't lose it you know is sort of nice because okay maybe it's not some great effect but just those extra luck pump luck points that get you just into the okay here's minimal effect but i don't lose the spells you know that's a pretty big thing for the wizard you can just try to cast that again next turn so does it does it play out in your guys campaigns that the wizard and the halfling immediately become the players immediately become buddy buddy because of that yeah um i mean my group's pretty chaotic but yeah there's definitely there's he is very amenable to donating luck to the wizard he doesn't have too many people in the party that he's hesitant to do so so i don't know if the wizard's more so but uh he definitely helps the wizard out a a fair amount i have a question for you jeffrey yes at the higher levels where they have the two action dice that they get to roll yes how are you dealing with that do they then get a third attack Ooh, good question you know you know just in case the one in my party actually lives that long um (laughs) Yeah, I would give them the the extra attack, I think. I would give them a third attack. Uh, I don't know if it's come up for sure. I don't... Hmm. Well, at first blush, it would seem like they would have their choice of dual wielding at a higher action die because the rule is it's one action die back. So at high level, they'd have a an increased action die, right? Right. It starts them out with a d20 and a d14 when they get to sixth. Or their choice of just doing it straight with one weapon, two two actions with one weapon. Right. I'd give him the third attack. I mean, you yeah. Know, step down, whatever the D fourteen to a D twelve. Um, I don't think that's too powerful. Yeah, I'd give him hmm. the additional attack on that. Just one, though, not. 
Not, you know, he couldn't step the D14 down to the D12 times two. Yeah, that'd be a bit much. Well, you know, and Jeffrey, you hit on something too there is that uh, do you guys let the halfling, you know, even though he's got two weapons in his hand, uh, choose to attack with a single one of those weapons with the D20? I do, yeah. I'll let them choose to. If he wants to boost and just do a d20, made a significant move, I only let him make a one attack. And that may be a throwback to 3D.x rules and stuff like that. But if he's made a significant move, if it's just a short little jaunt, then he, he'll do both. But if he's had to cross, you know, 20, 25 feet to reach somebody, and again, we don't have tokens, so a lot of it's just subjective, but uh, I, I usually say you can't double attack with that i don't know if that's right or not but i do that as well but yeah if he chooses to use just one one weapon i let him roll d20 for it i do it the same way just wondering and i'm wondering if i would step him down like so back to jen's thing i don't know if i would step that d14 down to a d12 really yeah i don't know if i would or not i mean it's sort of a second action full action so i might give them their dual wield and then the D14 as a, as a single attack, maybe. I don't know. I'm sure that'll be coming up quite soon, though, because it'll be much more combat-oriented in the next couple sessions for me. So I'm yeah. sure I'll have, a, have to clarify my position on that. But I almost think I would do dual-wield and then go ahead and take the D14 with a single attack. Well, and at 7th, your guy's going to be uh, looking at the possibility D16. of a D20 plus D16. Yeah, that's... Yep. Oof. Good luck with that. Well... You know, know everything gets more powerful. <laughs> we'll, we shall see. Well, this is kind of a judging style question. Uh, I'll base it on what I do and then ask you what you guys do. When characters have luck, and particularly characters like the Halfling, and in uh, Mutant Car Classics I've got an equivalent uh, class that has the same luck mechanic, my goal as a referee is to encourage the players to burn their luck as frequently and as quickly as possible because when they're out of luck, that's when they start thinking harder about their combat <laughs> situations. Do you guys play hardball like that? or? Well, I don't know. I've got, you know, our halfling, like I mentioned, is a little insane. And when using that ring to get the right level to be able to speak with this thing that had been dead for, you know, X number of years, no spoilers, a uh, little late, uh, <laughs> he spent seven points of luck on that because he needed that additional 14 points. Yep. And after that, uh, he had a couple that he could maybe loan to somebody if they needed, but it was pretty much, okay, the three thing else, because now the thief get, gets more uh, luck die options. Well, I love the luck mechanic, but, you know, it, it could be abused which they considered in writing the halfling rules by uh, Joseph putting in there, you can only have one lucky halfling. But I'm thinking of uh, when uh, Rick Hull ran us through a playtest of Colossus Arrived, that's an eighth-level adventure, and he hands out the pregens, and none of us had a luck score worth a damn on our sheets. And we got whiny about it, and he's like, hey, you, <laughs> you didn't get the eighth level by keeping all your luck. Those are the stats you get, and he was right. Yeah, I do the same thing. If I roll up a higher-level character, um, I just subtract, like, at least they have a number of levels um, in luck points. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, I think it's a good way to do it for those higher level pregens. I mean, anybody besides thieves and halflings because they regenerate. Right. Well, plus it just ruins con games. Everyone's like, uh, I'm just going to burn 12 points of luck. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I am sort of like you, Jim. I sometimes like to wear the characters down before they get towards the end. So I have no problems watching them spend lots of luck early on. Uh, in fact, one of the sessions we played, when the group was first assaulting Leotal's tower, this, the way she defended it was specifically a gauntlet of, sor of sort to specifically, essentially meat grinder them down, you know, spend luck to avoid that trap, spend luck to find this trap, and then, oh, shoot, that really wasn't the challenging part of this gauntlet. Now I'm burned <laughs> down and use my cool resources, and it looks like there's more to come. So, yeah, I sort of play that way as well. And that's not just being a bastard judge. That's good storytelling mechanics. I mean, Luke Skywalker needed to save that last little bit of luck for the very end of Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, um, you know, just in general, um, people are probably interested in uh, two two fighting weapon uh, rules. So um, that, spreadsheet, that, one? that spreadsheet you did, Job, is magnificent. Can we put that on the webpage with the episode? Yeah, yeah, why don't we do that? Um, 
So the, the, the two fighting weapon, weapon rules are on uh, page 95 of the DCC core rulebook. Um, and as Jim pointed out, uh, I guess you get, uh, if you want to look some of the, the halfling-specific stuff, jump to page 60. Um, so some of the, the things that you should f- be familiar with, and this would be, you know, whoever is fighting with two, two just um, halflings. But um, if your warrior has an improved critical range um, and they're fighting with two weapons... They lose that improved crit range. It just goes back to um, if if you do get a crit, you don't get an auto uh, hit. You, you're still going to have to be able to hit the monster's AC with uh, with your roll plus your bonuses. You know what I thought was very interesting as I was reading through your spreadsheet and freshening up on these rules is with the uh, everybody but halfling two hand two weapon fighting rules. It notes that um, that in the case of a warrior who's doing two weapon fighting, uh, he rolls a separate deed die for each uh, action die. As opposed to, it's been a source of controversy, people have gone back and forth on how they run the dwarf character class who has the weapon and shield bash. Is it one deed die or two? It says specifically Hmm. two two weapon fighting, it's definitely a separate deed die for each action die. Interesting. And it... it Bumps the initiative down one die on the chain as well. For everybody but halflings, if they're fighting with two weapons, they roll a d16 just to get in the initiative. Um, yeah, is that true? Did I did I make that up? No, it's in the book. Oh, okay. <laughs> is <laughs> it? <laughs> it's true for two-handed weapons. Is it true yeah. for two-weapon fighting? Two-handed weapon bumps the the you know, down, but is it true I for? S- I see it in your show notes that you wrote, Job, and since they're on the internet, they must be true. <laughs> right, exactly. And he is a Goodman Games writer, so it must be true. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I, yeah. I think that was part of the errata for one of the later sessions. They added that, that part just, in. Oh, yeah, dude, you gave me a great yeah. idea, Jeffrey. I'm going straight to the Goodman forums and starting a new topic. Job yeah. Bittman says... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wrote it in the notes, and I always try to put the... the the page uh, references in there so that I can double check my work because um, unless they're made up, sometimes. then you skip the page reference because there's no. <laughs> yeah, it's not your fault, man. You wrote these show notes like two months ago. We've just been yeah. postponing the episode. Yeah, this is like me running, you know, my adventures when I haven't read them in months. You know, now I'm like, oh, but well, maybe I should have actually reviewed all these. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so now we're going to get to the real meat of this, though, which is um, I might be wrong on this too because I'm not any kind of math head, but. I went out on the internet and tried to figure out, uh, you know, what are the two-weapon fighting probabilities, and when should you attack with um, two-handedness, and when should you attack with with a single hand. Um, so the reason I did this because I, I played a halfling at the table, and it seemed like I was never hitting, and it was pissing me off. <laughs> and uh, uh, and at a few play tests too, um, I noticed that it seemed like the halfling could never hit. Um, it was you know like a lower level game, but still it was it was kind of annoying. Um, so, um, I went out and found the, how to figure out the probabilities for this. So basically, you know, the D20 is easy. It's just, um, multiples of 5%, basically. Um, and so the way to calculate the two weapon, uh, the two weapon probability basically, um, is, uh, you want to figure out if you're going to hit at least once, because then, you know, it's going to be the equivalent of if you having attacked with a D20 and hit. I'm with you uh, so far. Okay, so basically I calculated it all out, compared the two, and I came up with a formula to kind of figure out, um, you know, if you're if you're uh, rolling your two weapon attacks with d16s, when you should do a uh, a one-handed attack or a two weapon attack. So basically, what you do is um, if you take the monster AC and then uh, minus ten, and then add your your melee uh, attack bonus. If that is equal to or greater than four then you're better off um, attacking with a single weapon. You'll have, a, at, at four, you have like a, a very tiny percentage, better chance of hitting with, with the D20. Man, that is some genius number crunching. Yeah, well, it, it will be if it's true. I, I will, <laughs> well, the great thing about I'll this... Share, we'll share our work on the, on the website, and please, somebody fix it if it's wrong, and we'll give <laughs> you credit that, on the next show. That's the great thing about this podcast, is we have the most intelligent listeners ever, so they will jump in there and correct your math if it's wrong. Yeah, you know, actually, man, I should have hit up one of our uh, data science people at work. We've got a, bu- a bunch of mathicorns that uh, 
that that probably would have figured this out and checked it for me. But oh well, we've had listeners, so I don't have to bug them. I can yeah, put I, them to work. I can't help you with the math. I can draw a cartoon of the formula for you. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there's different ways you can make that formula, but but uh, you know, one way that works is you know monster AC minus ten plus your melee bonus. That's four or higher. Then you're better off um, attacking with one. <laughs> Okay, well, let's let's wrap this up with something you put in the show notes that I remember and think is very interesting. Um, last thing about the Halfling class is in the rules it says that the donated luck, the luck donated to another player, can be for any rolls. Is exactly what it says. And then there's a hyphen, and it lists off some of the typical ones like you know spell checks and attack rolls and things like that. But it but the front of the sentence says any rolls. Uh, you noted that when Daniel Bishop was on the show, he talked about allowing uh, players to burn luck in certain special circumstances. Do you remember what he said? I I don't remember now. I, um, saving dogs? He had a saving dogs roll or poodles or something? Well, no. What he said, what uh, Daniel said, that uh, he would allow the halflings to either burn luck and use it themselves or donate luck if it's some a character trying to do something they might not normally be able to do. Say uh, the halfling has a movement of... Uh, 20, but he absolutely needs to get, you know, 50 yards ahead across a chasm. Well, burn some luck, add it to your roll, and we'll see if you make the jump check. That makes sense. Oh, yeah, 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 I remember that. Yeah, he would just let people cash in luck points to do something cool. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good uh, house rule for that stuff. Plus, yeah, it gets people cool. using up their, their precious luck points. <laughs> well, yeah, back to my point. <laughs> It's like wishes, man. Whenever the players get their hands on wishes, it's my job as judge to get those wishes done and burned out as quickly as possible. I like it. <laughs> yeah, just throw a bunch of junk like that at, at the beginning of the adventure to uh, get the halfling to burn off all of his double luck. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Well, I, has anybody else got anything else on halflings? I think that's a pretty good overview of them. We've covered a lot of their highlights and how we've used them in the game. and Well done, show notes, Joe. Well done. Thank you. Definitely. Let's move it to Patron Bond. Who are you? Your new lord and master. What orders from Mordor, my lord? Oh, don't trouble. One thing I can't stand is people groveling. Patron Bond. Okay, Patron Bond is a section of the show where we evaluate and rate whatever the show topic has been. In this case, it'll be the Halfling class as a game mechanic and award it a rating on our system that starts with critical hit, goes to hit, miss, or fumble. And we'll just go around the table in reverse seniority order. Jen, how do you of rate course. it? <laughs> Well, like I said, I really love the the concept of the good luck charm, and it's played out really well. I mean, it, if somebody dies because the halfling didn't spend that luck, well, maybe that's a guilt trip that's worth exploring. Um, <laughs> but really, when it gets down to it, the imagery of the little furry dudes waving two weapons in combat is just it, it's what it's all about. I, I, I would definitely call it a critical hit, although I have to give credit where credit is due in that uh, Bob has been playing one of the best halflings I've seen in this game, and he is, oh, beyond crazy and, and insane, and he really makes it into, I think, what Joseph was envisioning. So definitely a critical hit for me. Well done, Bob. <laughs> How about you, Jeffrey? Uh, I, I'm going to go with a, a soft critical hit on this one. I do think it's good. I think they're more interesting uh, than Halflings and a lot of other uh, games because they come with their uniqueness to it. Uh, both their dual-wielding skills are awesome. Uh, and then the luck mechanic, how it fits in. Their luck battery status, how it fits in with the luck mechanic in DCC is, is cool. The Halflings I've seen have been a lot of fun. They, you know, The first one I saw played was literally the rolling ball of death, and that was cool. So I'll go with critical hit on it because I I think halflings finally have their place. They're not just the short thief anymore, uh, and they can actually do some cool stuff and help a party out and be a, a strong contributing member. So critical hit for me. All right, I'm going to also go with a critical hit for no other reason than in this game in DCC, 
Joseph has created a class I actually enjoy playing. I would never play a Hobbit or Halfling in any other system voluntarily, and I loved playing a Halfling in DCC. Awesome. How about you, Joe? Uh, I'd definitely go for a critical hit on the Halfling. Um, the, I think the number one uh, thing that it hits for me is it's got great flavor, and the mechanics uh, support the flavor that he created, and it's unique. Um, you haven't really seen um, any kind of class like this, and you wouldn't see a class like this in any other game than uh, DCC. So, critical hit from me. Excellent. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. So, remember, never split the party unless the party's already split. See you later, peoples. Good night, everyone. See you guys. And we're out. The Spellburn Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. The Spellburn theme music is provided by the band Glitter Wizard. You can find them at glitterwizard.bandcamp.com. Halfling manscaping services for tonight's episode were provided by Bitman's on the Shire, where it's always twice the haircut for one half the price. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Spellburn. Cause those Van Patten Brothers are so headstrong Master Ninja Thieves are Master Ninja Thieves are To them it's some kind of ritual <laughs>